EU Confidential gets started right after this. This episode is presented by Google. Hi, this is Elena. Today, billions of people turn to Google for help in moments big and small. It's our responsibility to keep you safe online by protecting your personal information and respecting your privacy. So every day is safer with Google. We are connected to the world by narrow straits, stormy seas and vast land borders. And because of that geography, Europe knows better than anyone else that if you don't deal in time with a crisis abroad, this crisis will come to you. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen giving her big set-piece speech of the year, the State of the European Union at the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Yes, the pilgrimage or travelling circus, depending on your point of view, is back, with MEPs, officials and journalists all trooping down to the Parliament's official home in Alsace for the first time in a long while. Later in the podcast, we'll give you a taste of what the atmosphere was like and we'll dive deep into von der Leyen's speech, bringing you the highlights as well as our own political analysis of how she tackled some of the big issues facing Europe, including the pandemic, climate change, digitisation, economic recovery and foreign policy. All that's coming up in just a moment, but first let's turn to our podcast panel to look at the big European political story hanging over everything at the moment, including the State of the Union. That's the German election campaign. Welcome to Reem in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And Matt in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And we'll start with you, the German election entering its final days, just over a week to go. What do you think has been the the story of the last few days in the campaign? Well, I think there are a couple of stories. One of them is that it really is down now to the SPD and the CDU fighting for first place. This, for most of the campaign, has been a three-way race. And I think in the last 10 days or so, it's really become clear that it is a two-way race between Olaf Scholz, the finance minister, and Armin Laschet the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia uh, from the CDU. And the other thing is, is that it's become much more partisan. This has been a very kind of boring and quite polite campaign for the most part. And I would say that in the last days, we've really seen the the gloves come off in a way that we, we haven't before, in particular with innuendo and suggestions about what the other party is secretly, supposedly planning after election day. Right. And one of the questions that has been asked or uh, the specter, if you like, that is being raised by the CDU, CSU, they would see it as that anyway, is the prospect of the Social Democrats and the Greens teaming up with the left party. How realistic a prospect do you think that is? So that's a good James Bond reference uh, right there, Spectre. Oh, there we go, um, yeah. So uh, this is something that you know has, has really become the subject of a lot of focus uh, recently. And I wrote a little piece about it, the Red Scare and why people shouldn't dismiss it out of hand. And I think the reason is, is that if the SPD has a comfortable lead and if it can build a coalition with two like-minded parties – 
you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure within the SPD, within the left wing of the SPD to go into a coalition with the left and with the Greens rather than form an alliance with the more conservative FDP, which is really at odds with the social Democrats on key issues when it comes to taxes, when it comes to budget deficits, and even when it comes to to Europe. So I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. That doesn't mean that it's definitely going to happen or that it's even likely to happen, but it's certainly something that could happen. And interestingly, Olaf Scholz, the SPD candidate, hasn't ruled it out, partly for tactical reasons, but also because you know, maybe it really would be something that that his party would seriously consider. And these coalitions do exist between the SPD, the Greens, and and the left party at the state level. So it's it's not like it would be the sort of breaking of a huge taboo. I mean, certainly at the federal level, many people would see it that way, but they have worked together before. Yeah, I mean, part of this will come down to the numbers, right? The kind of coalition math, which combinations of parties are possible. And that is um, moving around a bit. And one of the the joys of the German electoral system is we don't even know how many members of parliament there are going to be. We will not get into the joys of overhang mandates and all these extra seats that can get added to parliament. But this makes it much more difficult than other systems to actually know how many MPs each party is going to have even when you can see their share of vote uh, in the polls at the moment. So that's part of it. But I guess the counter argument, Matt, is that um, Olaf Scholz is running very much as a centrist. And would he really want to go into a coalition with a party, the left party, which is anti-NATO, you know, pro-Russia, would make life very difficult for uh, a German government in terms of relations with the US, even relations within Europe, certainly within NATO? Absolutely. And I think the answer is that he personally would not want to go into such a coalition because the left, you know, which includes a lot of former communists, is not just anti-NATO. They want to get out of NATO altogether. They would refuse to uh, accept any kind of German military involvement abroad as well. So these are big kind of foreign policy problems that the coalition would have to overcome. That said, if they only have 6% where they are now, they would be a pretty junior member of this coalition. And then the question is, well, can you somehow ring fence them from being involved in these issues? And would that party, would the left party be willing to kind of accept NATO and you know other things that they find distasteful, like Germany meeting its defense spending obligations and, and that kind of thing? Or not, as I said, I mean, I do, I do think that it is not necessarily the most likely scenario, but it certainly has galvanized this campaign because this is a kind of a an old uh, warning of the conservatives in Germany, which is that you know if you leave the the left to itself, they're going to kind of you know drive the country off uh, the cliff towards Russia. And I mean, you have to wonder if that's really getting any traction. Now, you don't really, you don't see it so far in the polls, but, you know, as we enter the final days of this campaign, you know, it might give some, some voters pause. 
Right, I mean, it's become a big attack line, the sort of main attack line of Armin Laschet and the CDU-CSU. Uh, we've even heard Angela Merkel uh, use it. Um, but yet, as you say, the SPD are still you know, comfortably ahead in the polls as we're recording this. They're around 25 26%, and uh, CDU-CSU around 21%. So a pretty comfortable lead for a party that nobody, I don't think, would have predicted even a few months ago uh, would be leading this race and certainly not leading it you know, with that kind of margin. Absolutely. And I would just add that the real wild card here is what the SPD itself decides after the election if they do have these majorities because Olaf Scholz is a central figure, obviously, and, and he will have a lot of leverage, I would say, if, if he as the candidate manages to have turned this party's fortunes around so dramatically. But he is not the leader of the party. The SPD has a quite leftist leadership. They have uh, co-leaders, both of whom are on the left side of the party. And the conservatives now are kind of accusing Schultz of putting these people, you know, in the attic until election day so that they don't scare off more moderate uh, voters. Reem, what do you make of all this? Matt and I are old, you know, connoisseurs of German politics, have, have spent far too much of our lives uh, following it and, and thinking about it. What strikes you as you as you watch the campaign from a, a healthier distance? I'm definitely much more of a newcomer to German politics than both of you. Uh, what I am really struck by is one, the fact that, you know, this really seems to be like an open race in a way that I guess uh, we hadn't seen in, in many, 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 many years. The other thing, and I've, I've been talking a lot to French officials over the past week about how they're perceiving and how they're looking at and observing the current campaign in Germany. And what's interesting is that they have said that, uh, you know, there are sort of two really different dynamics this time around. One, uh, the fact that no matter who wins the chancellorship, it is the French side of this Franco-German duo, couple, tandem, whatever you want to call them, depending on what your nationality is. The French side is going to be the more experienced, more stable one. And that we haven't seen in many, many years, if if at any point, actually, in time. And the second thing, which I thought was really interesting, is that French officials say this time around, you know, the German, all three, and I guess now two leading candidates, take it for granted that they absolutely want there to be a constructive and productive relationship with France from the get-go. You'll recall that in 2017, when Macron was elected, it took a while for him and Merkel to come to the same place. One, because Merkel was dealing with a complex coalition situation. And so French officials here say that they are in a completely different uh, context now. So really interesting to see these dynamics. And you know, not to be too corny, but I think it's really interesting that given the history, we now take for granted that, you know, France and Germany and their politicians actually want to play nice and they want to kind of work together, even if they have really big disagreements, as opposed to, you know, their very difficult history in the past. So I guess that's one for the EU and peace. That that was pretty corny. <laughs> but it's something that's coming up here, actually. Matt, do you want? I mean, do you want to counteract that corniness now with some acid? Uh, no, no, no. I'll just let that 
I'll let that stand. <laughs> okay. Well, let's switch to Paris or Riemann and the other election, which is which is starting to loom quite large. You know, the French presidential election obviously is not until next April, but we are actually starting to see candidates declare, and also people just kind of jockeying for attention. Right? Well, who are the latest uh, people to officially put their hats in the ring? So we have two women who have now entered uh, the ring, uh, in addition to a, a woman who already entered the ring last week. Uh, so the Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, who is from the Socialist Party, announced she was going to run uh, for president. The far-right leader, Marine Le Pen, also announced she was running for president. And last week, it was uh, Valérie Pécresse, who is the president of the uh, sort of Paris region and a conservative, also announced she was going to run for president, in addition to, of course, uh, a couple more in the conservative party that have already announced, including uh, someone our, our Brussels listeners will know very well, and that is uh, the former Brexit uh, negotiator, Barnier. Uh, Brexiteer, it sounds like. And he shocked everyone when he said uh, last week that he would actually support France leaving uh, the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which, of course, uh, really raised a lot of uh, eyebrows and had people wondering if he hadn't caught uh, a case of Brexititis. And it's interesting because actually this week uh, he gave an interview to uh, a French newspaper saying that he is basically just trying to really deal with the real issues that the French people care about and that one should listen to uh, the gripes of the French people in order to avoid more Brexits. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Although he doesn't and, and so far he doesn't seem to be gaining much traction as a, you know, as a viable kind of candidate for Les Républicains. Who do you think of the field so far? Who worries Macron and Macron's camp the most? It's absolutely the conservative uh, field, even though the conservatives, Les Républicains, have not uh, decided who would be their uh, candidate. There's a big question on whether they will have one candidate or two candidates because their front runner right now is actually refusing to uh, stand in a primary election. Uh, so this there's Xavier a, Bertrand. Right? Xavier Bertrand, who's the president of another region uh, in France. Uh, and so they are going to have to figure that out pretty quickly uh, in order to get their ducks in a row and really sort of present a united front. Macron is obviously more worried about the conservatives because it is the party, the traditional party, the mainstream party that somehow managed to survive his uh, sort of aggressive uh, takeover or attempted takeover in 2017 when he absolutely destroyed the socialist party, but hasn't quite been able to destroy the conservatives. And a lot of the conservative ideas have uh, sort of gotten a bit more play uh, lately, a lot about security, a lot about immigration and migration, issues about debt uh, with the recovery plan. Uh, so all of these things are very important. Well, as we know, and as you say, with these French uh, presidential elections, they do go on for a while and the field tends to kind of change and, uh, you know, people make a seem to be right, riding high and then fall back. So we'll watch it with some interest. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Reem and Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And just before we move on, another reminder that we have a daily German election playbook for you. It's free. It's a newsletter that rounds up the day in the German campaign, hits your inbox every day at 5pm Central European time, and you can sign up for it via a link that we'll put in the show notes. Now, coming up next, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen gave that big speech this week about the state of the European Union. 
How did she do? What did she or didn't she address? And were there any surprising moments? All of that and more will be answered by our team of political reporters right after this short message. A message from Google. Every day at Google, we focus on making sure you are in control of your data by building products that are secure by default and private by design. Keeping you safe online means continuously protecting the security and privacy of your information. The safety of our products is driven by three core principles. Treating your information responsibly, protecting it with world-class security, and keeping you in control. With the upcoming European Cybersecurity Month in October, we are inviting you to learn more about the progress we've made to create a safer internet and how we will continue to innovate so that every day you're safer with Google. Learn more at safety.google. So good morning. Good morning, dear colleagues. Good morning. The sitting is open. This morning's item on the agenda is the statement by the President of the European Commission on the State of the Union. Dear President, we are all very much looking forward... Once a year, the European Commission President stands in front of the European Parliament and delivers a State of the Union address. Thank you, Mrs. President, Honourable Members. I think many... Now, for our American listeners, the EU's State of the Union is a little less, well, stately... First, it takes place at nine o'clock in the morning and it lacks a bit of the pomp and circumstance of the grand entrance of the president. Madam Speaker, the president of the United States. And all the handshaking. But we did want to give you a little sense of the atmosphere in the European Parliament Wednesday morning in Strasbourg with our reporter Maya de la Baum and Suzanne Lynch, co-author of Brussels Playbook. Here I am in the European Parliament in Strasbourg with my colleague Suzanne Lynch and it was really full house this morning. Uh, A lot of MEPs showed up. It's the very first session after the summer break and it was the big moment in the EU. She didn't make many announcements but people were, you know, just reminded of what the European Union has done so far and especially in terms of vaccine but here is Suzanne with me and she knows much better than me about policy (laughs) priority so Suzanne tell us a little more about what you your feedback on this. Yeah, I think you're right, Maya. I mean, the point of these kind of speeches is really to set out priorities and set out the vision for the European Commission for the year. Um, And we were expecting, you know, a lot on some of these big themes like health, the migration, uh, climate. But, I mean, there were a few uh, details. You know, we got a few new things. Um, Ursula von der Leyen announced that she's pledging another 200 million vaccine doses to go to low-income countries. Also, kind of more ambitious plans about strengthening EU's competence and health. Also, she spoke a bit about semiconductors. That's been an issue Europe wants now to up its game in terms of manufacturing and indeed exporting semiconductors. So that was something she spoke about. Uh, She called it the European Chip Act. So that uh, led to a lot of jokes about uh, frites and uh, Brussels, its its most famous dish. Also, she announced there was going to be a new European Defence Summit next year during the French presidency, which she would convene with President Macron. So that's something to watch. But yeah, pretty buzzy atmosphere around here today. So there you go, a bit of buzzy atmosphere, as Suzanne says. 
But let's dive deeper into some of the substance of some of what Suzanne mentioned, starting with our own Chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. So, David, you cover the European Commission and Ursula von der Leyen quite closely. For those who haven't listened, what were her sort of top lines? What were the highlights? Sure. So the Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, laid out her State of the Union speech, uh, quite a comprehensive speech, but not, in fact, a very rousing or emotional one. Uh, She titled it Strengthening the Soul of Our Union. And we'd say she may have found the, the EU soul somewhere in there, but she didn't find a lot of sustained applause. And that's really in keeping with her style. She's a very workaday politician, uh, diligent, dedicated, uh, but not flashy. First on her mind, I think, was talking about the pandemic and especially about the EU's vaccination program. Uh, we'll hear more about that from Sarah Wheaton in just a bit, but taking a bit of a victory lap after so much criticism and naysaying about the EU's rollout of its vaccine program. It now has some of the best vaccination rates on earth. Europe is among the world leaders. More than 70% of our adult population is fully vaccinated. We were the only ones to share half of our vaccine production with the rest of the world. We delivered more than 700 million doses of vaccines to the Europeans. We delivered... Other highlights for me, clearly she felt compelled to talk about Afghanistan and the abrupt end of the Western mission there. Witnessing events unfold in Afghanistan was profoundly painful for the families and friends of fallen servicemen and servicewomen. We bow to the sacrifice of those soldiers, diplomats, and aid workers who laid down their lives for our common cause. To make sure that their service will never be in vain, we have to reflect on how this mission could end so abruptly. She announced 100 million in new humanitarian aid, although she didn't talk about how that would be delivered now that the Taliban is in control of the country. But she also confronted this really tough question that the EU faces about its military capabilities and called for a European defense union, uh, suggesting that, um, stating that the EU really has to be able to do more on its own militarily. The good news is that over the past years, we have started to develop kind of a European defense ecosystem. But what we need now is the European defense union. In the last weeks, There have been many discussions on expeditionary forces, on what type and how many we need, battle groups and EU entry forces. This is no doubt part of the debate, and I think it will be part of the solution. But the more fundamental issue is why this has not worked in the past. You can have the most advanced forces in the world, but if you're never prepared to use them, of what use are they? Of course, that's often called strategic autonomy here in the Brussels bubble. She didn't use that phrase. It often draws eye rolls and uh, and criticism from folks who think that's unrealistic, that the EU will never be able to protect itself without the help of the United States. Uh, but she made a push for it, again, underlying to some extent the limits of the EU on the global stage. On migration, she pushed for uh, parliament and the member states to move more quickly on agreeing to a new pact on migration and asylum policy. The new pact on migration and asylum gives us 
everything we need to manage the different types of situations we face. All the elements are there. This is a balanced and humane system that works for all member states in all circumstances. We know that we can find common ground. But in the years since the Commission presented the pact, progress has been painfully slow. And I think this is the moment now for European migration management policy. So I urge this House and the member states to speed up the process. But a lot of us see that as kind of waving a white flag of surrender, realizing that the divisions between the 27 capitals are just too big. And this issue that has divided them since 2015 is not likely to be resolved in the next year. Great. Thanks very much, David. Thank you. And let's turn directly to some of those issues David mentioned with a few of our political policy reporters, starting with a familiar voice to the podcast. Our chief policy correspondent, Sarah Wheaton, is here. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Sarah, there was, as you might expect, a lot of focus on the EU's response to the coronavirus. Can you give us a sense of von der Leyen's main message there? Well, one thing that we really did expect was for her to take a deserved victory lap on the EU's vaccination rate. Politico famously started out the year with an article on how the EU fell behind on vaccines. It used to be considerably behind the United States and the United Kingdom in its vaccine rollout. But as we also argued at the time, the EU is taking a more medium term strategy, emphasizing things that would get a diversity of vaccines and also potentially secure trust. And indeed, the continent has, as von der Leyen pointed out, vaccinated about 70% of its adult population, which is certainly better than the United States at this point. We followed the science. We delivered to Europe. We delivered to the rest of the world. We did it the right way because we did it the European way. And I think it worked. So, but she did also acknowledge a major failure. She said our first and most urgent priority is to speed up global vaccination. As she noted, less than 1% of the doses administered have gone to low-income countries. And she had some very critical comments about how this is one of the great geopolitical issues of our time. And in von der Leyen's defense, this point about how no one is safe until everybody is safe and the need to vaccinate the world, she has been making this point from the very beginning. But the fact that she's still talking about it is sort of a reminder of the lack of power that she has to actually move this forward and encourage uh, European Union countries to share doses. But that said, she did say that the commission will be giving another 200 million doses by the middle of next year, and that a little less than doubles the existing European Union commitments. Our first and most urgent priority is to speed up global vaccination. With less than 1% of global doses administered in low-income countries, the scale of injustice and the level of urgency is obvious. This is one of the great geopolitical issues in our time. Team Europe. She said one thing that I found interesting. She said we have 1.8 billion additional doses secured. We have 1.8 billion additional doses secured. This is enough for us and our neighborhood. This is enough for us and our neighborhood. When booster shots are needed. When booster shots are needed. And I found it interesting that she used the word when and not if. 
And this is an issue that we're seeing both in Europe and in the United States and in the United Kingdom, where we're seeing political leaders kind of getting out ahead of policymakers as far as actually guaranteeing these booster shots. There's still no scientific consensus on when booster shots will be needed and for whom. There are already some people who are saying that, well, it's increasingly evident that we will need booster shots for older people or people who are immunocompromised. There are some who argue that we may never actually need booster shots for younger people. So to say when booster shots are needed is quite remarkable. We're seeing the Biden administration in the United States under fire for getting out ahead of its own scientists as far as offering booster shots. Obviously, von der Leyen didn't put any date or anything like that in her remarks, but certainly policymakers are planning for this to be an inevitability. And it does seem like perhaps booster shots will be a political inevitability, even if they're not a a medical inevitability. All right. Thanks, Sarah. And that leads us nicely into the EU's economic recovery from the coronavirus. So let's say hi to our recovery expert, Paola Tama. Hi, Paola. Hello there. Paola, I imagine that people around the continent are eager for Europe's economic recovery to really kick into gear. Did von der Leyen deliver the message that people wanted to hear? Well, definitely von der Leyen did bank on the recovery fund as one of Europe's huge successes. They put into place after just over a year of EU leaders having reached an agreement on it, a huge debt-fueled mechanism, agreed on its rules and already deployed almost 50 billion to 12 EU countries. So this is definitely a success. That said, it really does depend on the implementation and the proof of the pudding will be on whether countries deliver on their pledges. So this is not money that was given them with no strings attached. Rather, this was money which is tied to complex sets of structural reforms that each country has to implement. And von der Leyen did mention this in her speech. The good news is that with Next Generation EU, we will both invest in short-term recovery and in the long-term prosperity. We will address structural issues in our economy, from labor market reforms in Spain to pension reforms in Slovenia or to tax reforms in Austria, for example. So I think, you know, the jury's still out and we have to wait and see later in the second part of of this year how this is going to play out. Are countries really going to deliver on their pledges and will this tool be a success? Okay, and there's been a lot of talk about this recovery money and the goal to link it to upholding EU values on issues like the rule of law, for example. We know that Hungary and Poland are being very carefully scrutinised on this. Did von der Leyen touch on that controversial point at all? So she did address the rule of law and the fact that it's very crucial for the member countries of the EU to respect European law and values. However, she stopped short of naming and shaming the two countries with which Brussels is at war, which is Poland and Hungary. With these two countries, Brussels has taken the approach of sort of weaponizing the recovery money, meaning they haven't given their approval to the spending plans of Budapest and Warsaw because of issues related to the rule of law, supremacy of EU law, and respect of European values. And You know, in the short term, I think this is a tactic that 
may work. So countries may have to eventually cave into Brussels and make some concessions in order to unlock the money. However, long term, strategically, I think this has a cost because it is fueling anti-EU narrative in this country, is playing into you know, the electoral campaign of Viktor Orban in Hungary and driving governments in these countries further apart from the rest of the EU. Okay, Paula, well, there's no doubt we'll be talking about that more in the months ahead. Now let's turn to the issue of climate with Carl Mattison, our senior climate correspondent. Now, Carl, it's no surprise that climate played a big role in this speech. Not only was it one of von der Leyen's key priorities at the start of her commission, but it's now become an important part of the economic recovery. Was there anything that von der Leyen said that came as a surprise? There's nothing surprising. The Commission laid out its proposals for legislation for the Green Deal in July, so there's nothing new there. But she used the occasion to remind the Parliament and the Council, the Member States, that Europe had suffered terribly this summer from floods and fires, so the necessity to act and act fast was great. We saw floods in Belgium and Germany, and wildfires burning from Greek to the hills in France. So as we're rapidly heading into COP26 climate talks coming up in November in Glasgow, did she have any remarks ahead of those big talks? Yeah, she was keen to target the two biggest emitters in the world, the United States and China, and in very different ways. So she put the heat on China. She made it very explicit that she wants Beijing to peak its emissions during this decade, which is something it hasn't yet promised to do, and also to phase out coal power. Every country has a responsibility. The goals that President Xi has set out for China are encouraging, but we call for that same leadership on setting out how China will get there. The world would be relieved if they showed they could peak emissions by mid-decade and move away from coal at home and abroad. That was the message explicitly for China. But it was the US that she really had some of the strongest words for. My message today is that Europe is ready to do more. We will now propose an additional 4 billion euro for climate finance until 2027. But we expect the United States and our partners to step up too. This is vital because closing the climate finance gap together the US and the European Union, would be such a strong signal for global climate leadership. And it is time to deliver now. We have no time to wait anymore. So the big question is, what will the US do now? And that really is a key component to unlocking a lot of the politics ahead of COP26. Um, If the US doesn't step up, there'll be a terrible fallout amongst developing countries. And that really takes the heat off China. Thanks, Carl. And last but not least, we have von der Leyen's other big priority, which is digitisation. Digital is the make or break issue. And to talk us through this part of the speech, we have a new voice to the podcast, our technology reporter, Clotilde Couillard. Welcome, Clotilde. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. There's a lot of focus these days, particularly in Brussels, on the need for more regulation of social media platforms, for example, about the size and scope of technology companies. Was there anything new that von der Leyen managed to slip into this speech? Something that might have caught some of our listeners by surprise. 
Something that was interesting for the tech bubble here in, in Brussels was Ursula von der Leyen's announcement for a new European Chips Act. We depend right now on state-of-the-art chips manufactured by Asia. So this is not just a matter of our competitiveness. This is also a matter of tech sovereignty. The reason why so is that there's been a global chip shortage around the world that's been linked to disruptions in the global supply chains. And chips are really important for car makers and uh, also for consumer technology like headphones or TVs. And so that, you know, some of some companies, some European companies have had to pause their production lines because of that. And that's mostly because Europe relies a lot on foreign companies. We will present a new European Chips Act. We need to link. So when Ursula von der Leyen announced this new act, um, her idea, she said that Europe wanted to be bold again, and that it would be great to link up research and design in different European countries, as well as coordinating funding. And the aim is to jointly create a state-of-the-art European chip ecosystem, including production, that ensures our security of supply and will develop new markets for groundbreaking European tech. And something else that was also interesting coming from her was this announcement of a new European Cyber Resilience Act. And we should not just be satisfied to address the cyber threat, but also strive to become a leader in cybersecurity. It should be here in Europe where cyber defense tools are developed. And this is why we need a European cyber defense policy. She said that we needed European cyber defense policy and more legislation. There's already a cyber law that's in the works right now. And we just don't know what this new European Cyber Resilience Act could involve, really. That's great. Thanks, Clotilde. And thanks to all of our reporters for their analysis. We'll be sure to link to their coverage in our show notes. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please take a minute to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, feel free to leave us a review, preferably a nice one. And you can always send us feedback directly or ideas. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. That's podcast, singular, no S, at politico.eu. Our next episode will be coming to you from Germany. It'll be a special edition on the German election. In the meantime, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kottkamp and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.